0: favorite part has been teaching um, the Trent Fleming School of Nursing for the last four years. I think um, having an opportunity to learn and understand about leadership and collaboration is uh, often better understood when you can see it, when you're part of it, and um, but also hearing from the perspective of others who are working in those roles. Um, it's, it's somewhat difficult to just read and understand about leadership and, and collaboration. That's why we put together um, today's content is for you to be able to hear from current leaders um, in our healthcare system. Um, so I'm happy to actually have two of my favorite people uh, I know um, in healthcare join us today. So welcome Gary and Rachel. Um, I hope today's discussion will be exciting for you to hear their voices and perspectives um, and present you with ideas possible future careers in healthcare. Um, Having an understanding of how the healthcare system works and understanding the broader issues we face in healthcare is important for you to be able to support our patients um, and families and become the leaders of our future. So what I've done, I've taken uh, the opportunity to create a number of questions um, that will hopefully answer some of the questions that you have. Um, I've tried to incorporate as many of the questions received through Qualtrics um, into our broader questions for our panel. Um, so if you have any questions during our discussion, as Ruth was mentioning, please feel free to use the chat function and um, I will open up the discussion at the end of um, our, our time here with our panel, panelists, sorry, and uh, open up the floor for you guys to ask any personal questions that you may have that may not have been answered, okay? So, um, What I'll do is just uh, I will move the floor over to Rachel and Gary. So, welcome.
1: Um, Ruth, did you go through uh, who? rachel and gary were i did not so happy to do that or happy to have them introduce themselves either way um so the information that we've I've prepared for their or previously posted for the students is that uh, rachel is a primary care nurse practitioner at durham christian homes and gary is the president and chief executive officer oh, wow. for health systems welcome. so rachel and gary um maybe we'll
0: start with rachel um, Who are you? And tell us about your professional background and then Gary, Gary, if you'd like to lead after Rachel.
2: Okay, Uh, can you hear me? We're good. We're good, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, as they said, my name is Rachel. I currently work in um, healthcare. I, my experience originally was um, emergency medicine for I don't know 12 years or something like that and then i switched over to an education um, role in a surgical program so it was a good it was a good rounded effort um, i then decided that i didn't want to do management for the rest of my life and went back to school so it was a big jump in my life um and became a nurse practitioner uh while i was while I was in school, I always thought, oh, I wanna go back to emergency medicine and do stuff like that. And then when I was doing some of my placements, um, and I'm sure you guys placements will figure out which ones you like the best. And I actually realized that I loved the geriatric placements. It was a huge need in the community. And um, there was just so much learning, even though you think it can be, oh, maybe it's boring, but in reality, it's like this huge puzzle of people that can't actually speak to you. So um, that's been a great role. Um, anyways, this position came up. And so I worked for two different, it's Durham Christian homes. They have two different nursing homes in Bowmanville. So I share my time between the two. One is a 210 bed facility with um, about 12 rehab well. And then we also have a 60 bed facility. And we're in the process of building um, building a new build um, in Whitby. So. One of them will be closing. Um, yeah, so my role here is the nurse practitioner. I work Monday to Friday. I collaborate with the physicians. The patients are actually rostered to the physicians, but I technically am here, um, Monday to Friday and do the majority of the care. So I would call the physicians or, um, when I have a concern or a question that I don't, that it is beyond my scope of practice. But other than that, I pretty, and as, as our as our rules are expanding and our roles are expanding as a nurse practitioner there's more and more that i can do so yeah it's been great hey,
3: gary my turn hi Rachel. hey gary i miss you i miss uh, you <laughs> she, was already, she was a good nurse to begin with like she's <laughs> a convert, and she's fantastic as an mp so just if you want uh, Someone to look up to. He's your lady. Strong, smart, knows her stuff. Thanks, here. Uh, so I am. Uh, I'm in. I started in healthcare over 40 years ago. So don't. Not all people die past 40. So just so you know. <laughs> um, I started as a pot washer at Northwestern General Hospital. Worked in um, maintenance, kitchen, housekeeping. Finally got my. Went to nursing, got my RN, got my master's, got my specialty. Um, I've been a CEO for 12 years. Ray Bruce Health Services is a $200 million organization, six hospitals, and a mental health and addiction center. Um, 2,000 employees, 1,000 physicians, 1,500 volunteers. My executive training is at Rotman School of Business in University of Toronto, um, most recently Harvard and MIT. So I'm a nurse at heart, I suppose is what you'd call me, but I took a different route. Uh, Rachel took the point of the spear right next to the patient. I took the administrative role, but they're all still nursing, so that's me.
0: Jerry, Gary, um, can you explain to us, because I'm thinking that uh, this is a hot hot topic and everybody's trying to figure out the current political environment. Um, Maybe we can spend a little bit of time with what's happening right now with COVID. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on COVID because I think uh, we need to maybe think about something different, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, Maybe think about what else is happening in the world of healthcare, uh, both from the ministry and from um, Ontario Health Team?
3: It's complicated. Prior to COVID, of the pandemic, um, there was a lot of focus and shift away from the LEND structures, more than Ontario Health Team structure. The idea of bringing into the fold, along with acute care and long term care, bringing in home care, uh, community care, palliative care. Uh, as a focus completely around the patient and driven by the patient, which I think has been a vision for nursing for decades. It just bringing it to fruition and practicality within a, such a large system is very, very difficult. But that's what was going on just before COVID. With COVID occurring, and I was on an interview last week with, uh, with some television folks and The same question came up and and said, what were the highlights? What are the things that we've learned? So I I would tell you the things we've learned is the system is disjointed and many of us knew that anyway. There are a lot of silos that exist within our system that don't really help the patient or the patient's family for that matter. Um, So this whole conversation around patient-centric thinking, uh, planning, and processes has actually become more paramount coming out of the pandemic than even before. So I I think there's some positives that come out of the pandemic. Uh, One is the preparation for the next pandemic, which we're not out of this one yet, but there'll be another one down the road. Uh, Two, it highlighted that hospitals are quite well situated and structured for the management of such things, but home care, long-term care, um, they need support in order to get through these things, because they're they're, they're very complicated, and the resources that exist in home care, and and Rachel's better to speak to than me, and in long-term care, they're they're insufficient, and we've known that for years. And so the pressure that's been put on long-term care and on home care, and quite frankly, the disconnect of primary care, has resulted in a lot of challenges throughout the pandemic. So I don't know how, this, um, this subject is huge. I mean, they interviewed me for an hour just on that one subject last week. It's very complicated, very expensive, a dangerous subject. In that, the consequences of not managing the circumstances or the situations correctly going forward could result in a lot of deaths. And so, you know, I, I think as students coming up and coming out, uh, the biggest lesson to be learned is. We are connected from the bedside in a person's home all the way through to the acute centers that I manage. You know, I have acute ICU, PICU, mental health, acute mental health, uh, dialysis, cardiac, uh, pediatric. We manage all of those, uh, but none of those are any good if we're not connected all the way to the patient's home and the patient's journey.
0: Rachel how do you feel uh, about the current climate that this pandemic has um, presented and the negative press that uh, has occurred regarding long-term care homes
2: yeah that's a tough one um, it's actually been very upsetting when you see um, I mean all the time there's these programs called w5 and the only thing they ever highlight about long-term care is the negative aspects and You know no one ever no one ever comes into the home and sees the amazing things that we do and um and unfortunately once you know once a home gets covid you know you are just considered dirty and obviously have done something wrong um i think you know gary is absolutely correct in the fact that we are completely um underfunded and and everybody has put us on the back burner i mean even our new bill we're a sea level, we're a sea level facility. When I was in nursing school, this was a sea level facility still up, like we're still using it. So um, it's it's just really upsetting. Now the nice thing is inside the home, I feel like they've done a lot of good things for the culture within the home. Um, there's been supportive things that are happening. They're trying to, you know, we're trying to create an, um, an element of positivity and, Families have also been helping with that. Um, we've encouraged them to bring signs. They've done some drive-bys, they bring us signs. Now that some of the restrictions are up a little bit, we're actually bringing some food into the home. So, you know, Tim Horton's brought in a huge spread and then another day, somebody else brought in a huge spread and it really brings the positivity. I would say that our families, no matter what you hear on the news, our families are enormous and they have absolutely supported supported us 100 percent and when i actually speak to them and have telephone conferences with the families all they can say is thank you so much for taking care of my loved one thank you so much because we we have managed to keep them safe so and that's not to say that we are better than any other home we put some things in place at the beginning one of those was we, we restricted visitors earlier than municipal. So our visitation was restricted on the Thursday. Everybody else restricted Monday. Um, I think that saved us a lot because we're a we're a sea level facility. So many most of our bathrooms are shared. Um, we have three and four bed wards as well as war, as well as semi privates and privates. But mostly they are three and four bed wards, which is an absolute breeding ground. So if you're on isolation, there's a yellow curtain around you, and um, best of luck and. Education has also been hugely key um, because you have to educate the staff and continue to do so because if you're, you know, not donning and doffing your PPE correctly, you can wear as much as you want, but it's useless. So really, you know, you've needed to do that. So unfortunately, long-term care is seen as negative, but when you're living in it, it's actually been so much more of a positive experience than i expected it to be because of the support of our families because of the support of our community
0: that's good news Mm -hmm. we have any questions from our from our class there so far no i guess
2: do you feel like I guess in both of your endeavors, um, did you get a lot of support from government? Because I know that that's been quite a big thing in the news and different across provinces as well. So um, yeah, was that a big part of your
3: COVID experience, I suppose?
2: Do you want to answer that first Gary or do you want me to? So in long-term care, there is funding um, allotted. I don't exactly know how much because I don't deal with the budget, but I do know there's a significant amount that is allotted to each nursing home. Um, And with that money, we have had to buy um, more PPE, more cleaning supplies. We've paid for extra staff. So we now have, we have to pay for screeners at the doors. We have to pay for extra cleaning staff. And some of those cleaning staff, we even now need help with portering and just Uh, even some one-to-ones, because as you can imagine, there's no activities for these people, like major group activities. So all of a sudden there's more behaviors in the home. So we have more one-on-ones, just even spending a couple hours here and there. There is a funding pocket. Um, I'm still nervous as to, you know, whether or not this is going to break our bank account, because I can't even tell you how expensive it is. And even though, yes, we're using more PPE, the other issue is that the PPE is also more expensive than it used to be because of supply and demand. So, you know, the, the box of, um, I don't know, the box of masks may have cost you $10 for 100 before, and now it's costing you 20. So it's just, everything is doubled in price. So our, our expenditures are enormous and we're a not-for-profit home, so it makes me nervous. But so far, um, there is money, and you need to use those funds appropriately, which I think we really have. I mean, this place, it was clean, it was clean on a good day. I mean, it's a really old building, but just seeing the, the things that are in place is impressive.
0: Oh, from the acute, acute? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna ask you, Gary, from the acute care um, and funding. Yeah,
3: so, so hospitals are somewhat different. Um, we, because it was a switch over from the LIN structures, just before the pandemic hit, this government had failed to, uh, to eliminate the LINS. When the pandemic hit, the LIN structures, which would have been sub-regional structures to help support getting through this, they didn't exist. Consequently, the strongest structure that was existing at the time were the hospitals, and so we led. But shortly after that, Ontario Health was formed. Ontario Health, led by Matt Anderson, who was one of the CEOs from, from our group, from Lakeridge. We became the CEO of Ontario Health. Ontario Health immediately worked with the hospitals, the long-term cares formed together. Uh, the home care folks were already shutting down because they were part of the, of the CCAC. Uh, and so Ontario Health took over those pieces and we started to build the structures to get through dividing the pandemic, including we built a virtual warehouse for all of these. We built uh, uh, HR circles where we identified all the need for which doctors would have to go where if we got hit by the pandemic. We identified and put together how many ventilators we had, how many ICU beds we needed. Um, those pieces were all put in place. From a monetary perspective, Uh, We spend about a million a month uh, on uh, PPE, uh, equipment, et cetera. Uh, We have them for each month that we've been in the pandemic, uh, above and beyond our normal expenses. Uh, And we built a 75-bed field hospital uh, with um, oxygen, suction, electric beds. Uh, It has mobile x-ray, a full mobile lab. Um, and the whole thing can be built in any arena, taken down and rebuilt, and moved to any arena in Ontario. And we built that in 14 days, right at the start of the pandemic, without the government's help. We did it ourselves, in preparation, in case we got in trouble.
0: Thank you. Any Any other questions there before we move on to the next?
1: There's a few questions um, in the chat box as well. I don't know if you've had a chance to see those. I'm gonna, I'm gonna capture those in just a minute.
0: Perfect. Sounds good. Yeah, I, I'm just watching them as they come in, and I'm just gonna try and um, bring some of this COVID stuff to the end, um, so we can move on to a, a, a different perspective and positive thoughts. We're talking about it, but
1: it is a pain in the butt. Just so you know. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> to disrupt your flow, JB. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. Um,
0: Gary, what three things should this group be perfect right, oh be prepared for in the next five to ten years in healthcare, besides the pandemic? <laughs> oh boy.
3: Um as registered nurses you mean?
0: Yes. Hopefully we'll all be, hopefully we'll be all working at that point.
3: <laughs> yeah. Probably the biggest thing would be hopefully moving us away from the traditional medical model uh, that exists today, even though it's a necessary piece. Uh, you heard me talk about the fracturing of health care. Um, there should be a movement in the next 10 years to uh, the personal journey or personal health as a holistic part of life. So, you know, diet, exercise, spirituality, um, mindfulness, along with the traditional medicines, Eastern, Western. um, I think there's parts for everybody, but we need to start to make our journey from childhood to death normal. And I think we need to stop focusing on funding structures. And I think nurses pick, key role in that, I think people like Rachel, are are the key to the future. They're the link between traditional medicine and uh, real life. And and I think a greater focus or movement towards primary care, towards individual medicine, and and away from the traditional model is the future for all of nursing. RNs play a very particular role um, because You have the ability to do what Rachel did, which is to specialize. I think those specialties, even though they fall under extended class or NP, and Rachel will correct me if I use old language, um, is an advantage. Nurses have the greatest general skill set for the provision of health beyond traditional healthcare. And so I think the capacity to grow that, specialize it, develop it, expand the role that's the future for, for for all of you if you do it right you do not need to be subservient to a position we do not need to function under a medical model and Rachel will speak to that better I have
0: a question here from that um, just popped up into the chat that maybe can speak about being prepared um, from a leadership and upset care workers that are experiencing, that upset care workers are experiencing while working under the stress and uncertainty. And then also, can you speak to how nurses eat very young? So from this, to so this particular person, nursing students who are in year two, they have another two years to go before they're um, entering into our profession. Um, they, I'm certain that they hear about um, Nurses their young and have perhaps been a part of that culture. Um, Rachel, even Ruth, um, Gary, how do you, how do we develop the next set, of next leaders within healthcare with this culture, within this culture?
2: I guess. Of I can speak to that a little bit. So yes. In my opinion, we absolutely need. <laughs> you guys need to be a part of this change, and and every time. Um, Every time you see it happening, at the very least, and I, you need to do more than that, but at the very least, you need to remember that scenario in your head and you need to make sure and promise yourself that you will never tolerate that or be a part of that when you actually get into practice. And you need to remember that because you're going to get a student and I hope that you all accept a student to take on. And when you teach your students, your job, is to make your student like basically what i say when i have students i mean i've had students as an rn but now that i have students as an np i always say to them my job is to make you as efficient as possible so that in reality i can sit in my office and drink tea and you can take care of the nursing home that's how good i want you to be but i will support you 100 percent of the way and i'm certainly i don't believe there's a dumb question I don't believe, you know, every student is different, everyone learns differently, and we need to be the part of that change in culture. We need to not accept it. The other thing I would also encourage you to do, and I ex- I absolutely know that it's difficult, but if you see that negativity being put towards you, I would encourage you to call people out on it. Gently, kindly, but I would encourage you to people out and say, did you mean to hurt my feelings? or something along that line. Because I think people need to be taken aback and people need to remember. Like, I mean, you can see it even in the PSW culture here. We were going through a period where we had a number of PSWs quitting because there was so much activity happening. Um, and we've put a huge, I mean, I'm not saying we're perfect, but we definitely have kiboshed a lot of that behavior because it's absolutely and utterly unexpected. And we need to encourage people you know, I'm not worried that you're gonna take my job, but I want you to be able to do my job. That's that's really important to me, and to learn as much as you can and help you and that's our job as nurses. So I need you to remember every time that you will never do that when you are in practice.
0: How do you build strong and effective teams? You're asking who are you asking? Sorry, I thought you heard that. Gary, how do you build strong and effective teams? Oh, that's a
3: good question. I, I don't know that I built them. I think those concepts are whole. There are many philosophies of team structure. Uh, Canadian philosophy is often around, you know, we all collaborate, we all get along, we all drink from the same plot. But true effective teams, Not come not kumbaya teams,
1: uh, they often have some strong personalities, some very intelligent people
3: um, and, and they don't always get along and the concept of having a, having a leader in a team is also not necessarily accepted. There could be different leaders for different circumstances from the same teams. So depending on your skill set, your strength, you might lead one project, somebody else might lead another. And so when you build teams, as it were, those teams need to be adaptable, they need to change, they need to be flexible and nimble. We no longer have administrative teams, executive teams that run whole hospitals. The best teams within a hospital, I'll give it as an example, Whenever there's a need for a change, the best teams are frontline workers. So that you build your teams from inside, let frontline lead from the bottom up. And as the executives, you guide and support, remove boundaries, and you let people fail, and they learn by rapid change, not by years of planning. So it's a different world. We rapidly change now, it's always changing. So, teams have to be always changing anyway sorry rachel i think you were going to say that.
2: no i i would absolutely agree with you i mean i don't think i don't think that one person can lead everything i certainly you know when we look at falls in the nursing home i i refer over to physio and nursing leadership um, you know i mean i laugh when people say oh she's the big boss i'm not the boss i actually that's why i got into this role i love the clinical piece of it that's where i want to be do I have leadership skills? Absolutely, but not in everything. Um, so I would agree with you, Gary. It's, it, it's, it's not one person leading the team, that's
3: for sure. And I'm the last guy you want leading the team, just so you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rachel, how do you manage collaboration and delegation in your role as a nurse practitioner, and specifically uh. with, with family, unregulated healthcare
2: professions, which you work with, as well yeah. as the physicians? Um, so that's that's an interesting one, and it was a very different, If it was a, not that it was difficult, but it was something that I really had to think about when I first started um, in my role. Uh, when the alarm bells went off, and when the call bells went off, I had to literally stop myself from going to answer them, because that's what you do as a nurse. And, and it was like, why isn't anybody answering that? I've been sitting here for 20 minutes. Like what is happening? Not that, I don't, um, not that I don't answer call bells and not that I don't, you know, obviously if there's a chair alarm going off, I'm running as well because I don't want more paperwork. So I think that, um, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to, sorry, I'm trying to get my thoughts in place here. I think that as a, tell me the question again, Jane. That's okay, do you feel like you're having an interview right now
0: for a job? I do, I do. (laughs) How do you delegate, how do you man? how do you work, how do you work with family?
2: Okay, so when I'm working with families, um, that is something that I've learned. And at first it's a little bit uncomfortable speaking with families. I've had a lot of practice in Emerge uh, trying to diffuse situations and scenarios because it can become quite aggressive there, so that's helpful. I would say for the most part um people can be kind but when you're dealing with someone who's an advocate or their family members who cannot speak for themselves absolutely sometimes they are a bull and absolutely they sometimes need to be so i really find that when i'm developing relationships with families i've worked hard to do so over the last six years so to actually call them when i'm working on a plan of care and treatment plan to actually give them a call and say hey, uh, this is what I'm seeing in your mom. This is what I'd like to do. Do you have any other suggestions? How do you feel about that? And when I do that, I get more respect from the families and they are more likely to, first of all, sometimes it's just easier for me to do so. The RNs, technically for the most part, if it's just a regular occurrence, like let's say someone has a urinary tract infection, For the most part, it's the RPN's responsibility, the charge nurse's responsibility to give the family a call to say, Rachel saw the patient, this is what she's ordered, this is what's happening for your mom. But when there's difficult scenarios or it's a difficult family, often I will call because it helps to diffuse the situation. You get a lot more trust out of families when you involve them in the plan of care. Um, As far as delegation goes, that's another thing that I've had to learn. Um, The NP that was here, Uh, before myself, uh, she would flush patients' ears and do all of that stuff. Um, I don't do that. First of all, I have a lot more patients because I'm doing both homes. But the other piece is, is this is absolutely within the scope of practice of an RPN or an RN. And we need to encourage people to work within their full scope of practice. I think it's, I really are limiting people and, and suffocating them if you're not encouraging them to work within their scope. So that being said, you know, um, G tubes, for instance, we replace them ourselves here at the home because we get a specific type so that we can replace them. Did I know? I've never put in a G tube in my life, Um, but one of the RNs who was here for you know 30 years, she's done it before, so great. So she showed me, it's all about knowledge, skill, and judgment. So I'm very capable, but I also ensure that I'm passing it on to the nurses to be very capable because we also need to think about sustainability in the long run. If you're working in your scope of practice and you feel comfortable putting a G-tube in, you don't need to send the patient to emerge at 10 o'clock at night because their G-tube fell out on a Saturday night because you know that you're just gonna grab a new one and you're gonna put it in, and or you're gonna figure out what to do. So I feel that encouraging people to work within their full scope of practice is very important that way. Now, as far as unregulated healthcare um, uh, workers, I absolutely have the utmost respect for them. I could not do my job without them. And I think we need to remember as we head up the education ladder and head up, you know, whatever it is. I mean, Gary, you've always said make the, you know, you're still respectful of um, the housekeepers and the floor cleaners because you need these people in your lives. You absolutely need them in order for anyone to do care. And I feel the same way and I feel the same way about uh, the PSWs. Without them, I, I can't do my job because here's the other thing, the charge nurse is super busy, can't always tell me what the behaviors are or whatever is happening in the patient's world. If you sit down every once in a while and have a good rapport with un- unregulated healthcare or another, not professionals, but anyways, unregulated healthcare workers. If you have a good conversation with them and have a good rapport, they're going to tell you things. And they may tell you things that they have either told the charge nurse who has forgotten and not charted or haven't thought that it's ever an issue and they've just normalized something. So if you have a good rapport with them, they're gonna tell you things. And also, I, who am I gonna ask about what their, you know, what their pressure injury looks like? I'm gonna ask the PSWs, especially if it's a stage one, because I want to know, what what are you seeing? What's happening? And and very often, um, it's a great team effort. Um, I also defer to physio when someone has a fall or if someone needs an x-ray. These people don't always talk to you. So, I mean, in some ways my, um, you know, what I learned in school as far as assessment skills and asking a million questions, I can't because they just stare at you sometimes. or answer differently so when you have more than one professional going in and being able to pinpoint different issues physio and I work together um, and he'll say you know I saw this patient and I really feel that they could use an x-ray and we'll go we'll see the patient why do you think that and then we go from there so um, you need to work as a team and you need to absolutely utilize you know who's best at what in the team
0: Gary, do you have anything to add to that about collaboration or what what are important facets of collaboration in healthcare? Um
3: I'm not a I'm a terrible person to ask about that stuff. I mean I I believe in You are a very, very good leader, you are not. Well I believe in I I believe in uh, you know a respectful workplace, I believe in um, working together, having the same vision, being flexible to who the leader is, um, and I do, and I do believe that I'm the king of delegation, so I will have team upon team upon team upon team working on hundreds and hundreds of projects at all times, and I will not lead one. And each one of those teams, people, some of them are two people teams, some of them are 20 people teams, some of them are 40 position teams. They're all working on different projects and I always say that I am most effective, our organization is most effective when I am standing perfectly still and everybody around me is working away. I should not be walking down a hallway with a clipboard pointing at people are asking what they're doing. There should never be a time that, an organization and the people within it are not aware of what they're doing and why they're doing it together. But, I mean, I tend to think big in regards to collaboration in that if we're all clear where we're going, we all have clear goals and objectives, they're being led from the bottom up. Those teams are actively responsible and accountable for the delivery of those pieces. Then and you're rapidly changing, then that organization can do anything. It has very little to do with a suit or sitting in an office. It has very much to do with people like Rachel who are leading the day-to-day activities. And that's that respect piece. It's interesting when you nursing speaks about skill sets and um, what's within your practice. I will tell you that is the practice of medical health. You guys have way more skills outside of that that have yet to be developed. And and I will openly criticize nursing education for not going beyond the typical nursing education to the leadership portion and the change management, culture management, that, that massively affects how you operate within any clinical and non-clinical environments. And so it takes those adaptive individuals like Rachel to manage the nonsense that's inside because we don't educate ourselves on those pieces. The reason you're going to have questions on that is because you're graduating at the end of the four years and you're going to have to learn this skill in real life while getting, while people are trying to eat you alive (laughs) as was so nicely stated earlier. So I think You're gonna learn because you're gonna jump into the frying pan but I do believe you know the future is that nursing has this whole other side that it needs to grow in that's outside of the medical piece you heard me say it really So you know collaborate but grow don't stay inside your shell
0: I have a I have a little um, question here in the chat I see Ruth Rachel and Jamie nodding are you guys able to elaborate on the significance of this point um, what I was nodding at, um, I'll just jump in here, because it's, uh, this, that piece that Gary was speaking of is very um, important, uh, learning that I had as a, as a leader. Um, as a new novice leader, when I moved into management, um, there's leadership, and man- or leadership is different than management, but being a leader, um, you have to cycle through positive and what we call the pit of despair. <laughs> where it, it, I think, Gary, you were the one to say to me, you know, it's like an 18-month journey till you start feeling comfortable in your skin as a leader. Um, and this will be no different to you as, as a new grad coming out into the world of nursing. It's gonna be a journey. You're learning new things for the first time. You're being exposed to new people, to interprofessional collaboration. You cycle through the feelings of, you got this, with also that feeling of, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And then you slowly go through. I don't know. I look at it as a, as, as a cycle of um, positive, negative, positive, negative, or it could be like a ladder. But that ladder takes takes time um, to feel comfortable, um, to be exposed to new things, and to be able to ask questions. Um, so it's really important to find people that you're that you're comfortable with, that you're not afraid to ask questions, that you expose yourself to new situations and um, you work through those challenges and it's all normal. Uh, I'd also speak to, um, there was a point about, uh, I think Gary mentioned about the collaboration in leadership and I think of how Ruth and I work together um, in terms of in our roles as Compressed and Collaborative Coordinators. Ruth and I have exactly that that leadership uh, perspective with one another where with whatever whatever I don't get, Ruth gets, and, and vice versa. And I think that we work together with that fluid, um, in that fluid nature of being leaders um, and being able to support one another. So uh, it, yeah, there, there's some, so many good things that come of being in, in leadership roles and, and uh, yeah, I don't know, all this stuff resonates to me,
1: <laughs> right? Anything, Ruth? Yeah, um, I would agree with all of that, absolutely. And uh, thank you for the question. Um, I think the key parts for me are around the communication and the culture and looking at the other skills that you are developing. And I think that there's so many strong pieces that as I'm hearing Rachel and Gary and Jamie speak that are connecting to the content of this course. And particularly around organizational culture, that's a huge area of focus for me. Um, and, And what I've spent time in my career developing and understanding and took that into a formal leadership role. And the things that we've been talking about in terms of relationships and the way that we go about doing things and how we communicate with one another, those were the skills that I transferred from being a community nurse into my perspective of being a formal leader in that um, exactly what Gary was saying earlier, I looked to the people I was working with to have their perspective before I made any significant change, when there was time. If there's something you need to respond to immediately, that's that's a different thing. But in terms of the workplace culture and the process, it is about having trust for one another as well and giving each other a term that I learned and really appreciate is, professional benefit of the doubt. So before I um, make assumptions about something, I'm gonna go and have a conversation to understand why that person took that certain route. And so that I can then inform my response and have a meaningful conversation about that. So those are just some of the pieces that I was uh, nodding to and um, uh, finding the connections with our with our course content too. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my add on to that. Thank you.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, Gary, community engagement. Um, what have you learned from the voices of our patients and families? Uh, it's really important aspect, not only to this course, but um, I think just as, as new nurses, um, understanding that the patient and family um, need to be the center of everything that we do. What have you learned in the last three years about what the needs are for our patients and families? So
3: I guess the biggest lesson, we have learned from it, or at least I have learned from it, you do not know what they want or what they need. You think you do, but you're trained from a certain mind perspective, whether that's educational, cultural, personal, political, you have a perspective. Call it prejudice, call it privilege, call it whatever dance you want to call it. The only people who know what they need, what they want, and what's important to them are the patients themselves. So, every time (laughs) I think, I understand something, I shake my head and realize I am probably completely missing the most important factor, which is that patient needs to tell me what's most important to them. Look, I'm a smart guy, no doubt about it. Measure my IQ, measure my education, look at my experience, you would think I should know stuff. Every time I go near a patient population in community engagement, and I do a lot of community engagement, I am so embarrassed about what I don't know. I study the stats, I get the statistics, I'm great at statistics. All the people who are giving care in the area, I get feedback on. They can tell me all the things that are needed. We can do a study session two or three days, come out with a focus group, set our stuff in place, know exactly what we need to focus on. I put that in front of the patients and they laugh at me and say, that's not really important to us. And I realized I just really wasted my whole time. I should have started with the patient. I can tell you I did five days of engagement in the far north and I looked at everything from what was short from specialties, um, what kind of programs we needed to adapt and expand in the hospital, what was needed in community care, how many more nurses we needed in the community, how many PSWs. Thought I had it all figured out. Sat down for five days with these groups of people, and two things came out. One, they needed a bus that took them from their rural towns into the city so that they could pick up their meds and so that they could get to their doctor's appointment. Two, they then needed to have a way to get groceries back into their houses once they got dropped off at the bus because they had nowhere to get the food into the house. So here I was thinking we needed to develop diabetic programs, we needed to have physician-led this, NP, that. Their focus was we have no way to get there. I can't get the meds you're prescribing and I'm alone now so I need to be able to get my food into my house. Three big things that change the quality of life and their ability to comply with their health needs. You only learn by asking. That's my lesson. Any questions to
0: the the group. I have a question there from Renee, which I'm going to answer in just one second with my next question. Okay. Um, this is a question that came from um, the Qualtrics from some of the students that sent in information ahead of our um, day today. So what is, and Gary, maybe I can speak to, to uh, Ray Bruce. Um, what is your organization or others that you might know of they're doing um, to of the voices, experiences, and priorities of uh, people of color in indigenous communities. In regards to indigenous communities, is your organization or others like you know of working towards implementing any of the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation
3: Commission? That's a great question. So probably over the last four years, most organizations have started to engage with these Elders and started to do uh, educational activity because it starts all of this starts with, unfortunately, um, educating our staff, physicians, and our leadership to the indigenous journey. And I'm just going to speak indigenous for now, Um, it's a complicated, long journey. The indigenous approach to understanding them and working with them is thoughtful it's purposeful and it takes time it, we they do not want us to rush in with any solutions given the mass colossal massive rate of the last hundred years their request of us is to work at their pace they'll engage us when they want us they will tell us when they are ready to trust us again. And we've started that journey in some places with some specific activities that they have guided us in support of. but the vast majority of what we're doing and have done for the last two to three years is education and we are now starting to do some combined pieces around housing Uh, which, again, is odd for a hospital, I know, but uh, I have the thing sitting right here. (laughs) Um, We're building supportive housing with clinical teams that live within the communities with indigenous leading healthcare workers working within it. So they become our partners. So this is like a partnership of development and leadership and care, but it's done with the indigenous leading it. So, it's not us leading it, it's them so that the trust can be rebuilt. This is a complicated journey. So, I'll tell you that different organizations are at different points across the province, um, but we have a lot to make up for. Are we doing enough for colored, people of color? No. There's your answer. No, we're not. We need to do more concept of equity, equality, access, privilege, none of that's been addressed actively. It's been discussed, we talk about it, but doing it and changing culture doesn't happen quickly, so this will be a journey we all have to accept, and you may be the leaders that get us there.
0: Any other questions? I think we're, um, thank you for the honest truth, yeah, um, e- even from uh, our, even within our own curriculum, um, there's opportunities for improvement, and I think we, we try our best to um, bring light to cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity, cultural competency, um, even within, um, this this course in 2001, um, but we, as I'm going to echo with Gary, I think we, we need to do more. Absolutely. Um, and that we need also your perspective um, and shared perspective so we can learn. Um, absolutely. Um, we to move on to another. What is the, Rachel, Gary, what is the biggest risk you've taken in your career?
3: I know Rachel's. You go first.
2: (laughs) My biggest risk is that, as a single mom, I went back to school, and I knew that I needed something more in my life, and I knew that I wasn't fulfilled in the role that I was doing. And I took out a line of credit against the house because there were. I mean, I was. I went part time and um, paying the bills on my own, and then I actually had a three month placement full-time for my final placement and so I wasn't bringing in any cash during that time and it was the best decision I've ever made in my entire life it was it it took a lot of guts and um, I had a lot of support I will say well Gary and Jamie absolutely talked me through that I don't know that I would have I knew I needed something different but I didn't know I had the guts to do it and um, it's the best decision I've ever made because I've, you know, I've just never been happier in my role.
3: For me, I guess, what would I say? I take risks all the time. So, I am a risk taker by nature. But I guess the greatest risk I take is taking the back seat. So, letting others lead is the most difficult thing you'll do as a leader. And I will let people lead even if I know they're going to fail. If the learning is greater than the hurt or the effect, then I will guide the best I can, but it is really risky and really kind of nerve-wracking and very difficult for me to do. But once you do it enough, you realize that what you think is a risk, actually is no risk at all. And in fact, 99 times out of 100, people will do far better than you would ever believe. And then you think, so then you think you're, you think you're a pessimist and actually you become a complete optimist. I completely believe in people. I completely believe, given the opportunity, people like Rachel excel. She's always been a strong leader. She just needed to open that door. And now she flies. It's probably the case for all of you that have self-doubt, that wonder if you can really, if you're real, you know, you you doubt yourself. Even when you graduate as a nurse, you're going to say to yourself, do I really know what I'm doing? You need to have faith in yourself and have faith in others. And then risks are not what you think they are. Uh, in fact, it's quite overwhelming how great you feel and your life is improved when you have people like Rachel in your life that excel and go on to help so many others. And you will get that throughout your life. Friends that succeed and do well will make you feel great and and that is that's the beauty of risk I'm
0: going to add on to that too, Gary. I think also. The other thing that I've been taught uh, throughout my career is often when you doubt yourself, um, that is the time that people are looking at you and thinking um, of ways for you to achieve. And um, I know I've been in my own in my own role, or in my own profession, sorry. People have seen in me that I have not seen in myself and have plunked me out of a, a plunk really good word but have pulled me into an opportunity or presented me with an opportunity that I never would have thought would have been possible Um, so sometimes seeing in others and giving opportunities and presenting with new challenges um, I welcome all of you to take those challenges when those challenges present themselves even if you don't think that you're able or capable to do it um, you can
3: Um, so take those risks Things, right, Jamie? Yeah. You are yeah. You are beautiful people, and you are capable people. You always remember those three things. You will succeed. Smart, beautiful, and by beautiful I mean as a person and capable. You are more, far far more capable than you think.
0: writing that down for people to take and put on their wall as a take-home message for today. I don't know how to spell capable.
2: (laughs) It's okay. I'll edit later, Jane. (laughs)
0: Thanks. So if you guys are wondering what our relationship is here, Cause i'm sure some of you're wondering rachel and i have worked together actually we've been best friends for 17 years um our children yes. have known each other for since the time they were in their be- our bellies together but we also work together as uh, leaders um at, at licorice health in the surgical program and if any of you haven't noticed the name sims and sims um Yeah, it usually comes up. Gary's actually my husband, (laughs) so I thought I would share that for you guys, because people often bring up a question of, like, how do you guys know each other so well? So, uh, Renee, do it. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so, um, I'm just going to ask one more question, because I I have to be cognizant of both Gary and Rachel's time, and I want to thank you for taking this hour with us, and know that you're extremely busy right now um first thing what is the best thing that happened to you i'm going to use last week because this week has just started rachel
2: best thing that Um, happened to you uh so one of the best things that happened to me last week uh well personally lots of things but um professionally i would say that um we successfully palliated a woman um yeah, we successfully palliated a woman. So had a new nurse um on the floor where one of my palliative patients was. Um I usually try to do just rounding, just not to necessarily do major assessments, but just to peek in and make sure they're comfortable. Was finding that she wasn't comfortable. Talked to the nurse. She was uncomfortable with what to do and needed the skill set. So took time out of my day and absolutely you know, work with her, and by the end of the day, she was extremely, extremely comfortable, and it just gives me peace um, that, you know, people can end their life with peacefulness instead of, you know, discomfort. Uh, So I sounds a bit cheesy, I suppose, when I say it like this, but just really feel like I, like working with the staff, helping them and making sure that patients get the best care that they can—that um, was probably my favorite.